The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. It's time for a different take on spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Hi there, welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter, I'll be your host today. I'm kind of a spiritual journeyman and media consultant. I run a website with online courses called You Thrive Here at youthrivehere.com, and I'm at the Center for Spiritual Living, Greater Baltimore at cslgreaterbaltimore.org. Joining me today in place of my usual co-host, Sarah Bowen, who's off on some special assignment, I'm sure, is my super special guest co-host, Royce Christian. Royce is the author of the book, Scripting Ah. If You Want, Manifest Your Dreams with Just Pen and Paper. And he also has a hit TV show on, uh, by the same name on Sky TV in the UK. How you doing, Royce? I'm great. I'm traveling, so my internet is wonky, but other than that, I'm good. How are you, Jim? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah, we are having some technical difficulties today, but I'm glad I could have you on for at least the first section of this show. I think I'm going to have to go solo for the second part because of the delay, but um, it's also having you on. Have it, it's awesome having you on. So I'm just curious, what's going on in uh, in your world right now? Uh, a lot. I mean, I just wrapped the first season of my show on Sky, and we were actually already in pre-production for season two of that. And then my second book that I have been talking about for a year and a half, I finally, finally just had to say, okay, I'm done. I'm done. And it's it's done. So I'm just actually taking this week right now to go over the final pieces of that and uh get it ready for public consumption. And I've also been working with a good friend of both of ours, Dr. Mona Sabani, on her new book. She has a book coming out in the spring of 2022, which I think is going to change the world. So just a lot of, a lot of publishing, a lot in the publishing world right now, my, my very tiny break from the TV world. Well, you're a busy guy. So, you know, what, can you tease us a little bit more about the book? What exactly, where are we going with that book today? And, and do you have a publication date at this point? I hope it to be spring of next year. So not that long, not even a full year from now. I think about seven or eight months. Um, If all goes well, uh, actually, Dr. Mona's book and my book should be out, I think, around April or May of next year. Um, And as far as content, I don't want to give away too much because I do think it's pretty pretty different. Um, We definitely touch on things that I've talked about here, like the environment and that the impact that the environment and your house and your office has on your manifesting. But it ended up going in a little bit of a different direction where we really are trying to sort of set a new example for 
the future of this spiritual slash science kind of hybrid community and and setting new standards with the book itself. So I don't want to spoil it too much yet, but I, and to be honest, as it's wrapping up into being what it's going to be, I don't have the full answer to to give everybody exactly what it's going to be, except to say, I think hopefully it'll it'll wake some people up and change some minds and be a lot of fun because that's what it's all about. All right. Well, for now, I'll accept that. that that'll work for now. So I have a question for you. <laughs> so I have, yeah. a, I have a question for you. Um, in terms of channeled works, what are your thoughts on channeled works in general? We're I'm going to have Paul Selleck on uh, a little bit later, and uh, we're going to have a good conversation. I just wondered generally what you think about channeled works. Generally, I I mean, I people know I'm a fan of, of Esther Hicks and Abraham Hicks. So I definitely I mean, that's something I've been reading uh, since I was young, since I was 16. My mom introduced me to the Seth books when I was a teenager. Um, I've definitely I'm definitely very open minded to to channeled works. I think that there are a lot of people who claim to be able to channel. And I think that it's a very interesting world when you get into reading the actual messages. I think the biggest key is being uh open-minded to the message rather than the vehicle through which the message is coming and i think that's the biggest key um you know what is the ultimate message that is being spoken or channeled here and and that you know can make it a little bit easier if the idea of someone channeling is too hard for somebody well how about you what do you, what do you think well, I have mixed feelings about it, honestly. Um, I do be believe that there's some great wisdom that comes through these channeled works. Um, you know, I don't always understand the origin. I'm certainly open to that um, and open to the possibilities. But, you know, I don't think you should throw things out just because you're not exactly sure about the source if it's good material. You know, I think there's definitely some good good right. work in, in what I'm looking at today and, and some of the other books that I've, I've read. So, you know, I guess I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm open, like you said, I'm open to the possibilities. Yeah, I think that's the best way to look at it. I think that, you know, like you just said, it's just all about looking at the ultimate message and seeing what it is that the book or, or the channel is communicating. And that does help people, I think, get over it a little bit. And it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating uh, thing the idea of channeling I think is it just fascinates me so but I understand for a lot of people it's you know it can be hit or miss as far as believing it but I always say just look at the message absolutely absolutely the message is what's important all right do you have a quote for me today I do I just switched it to something that is from my second book yes it's my own quote but I think you'll like it because you, you made me feel like I didn't give you enough so I'm going to give you something from the book <laughs> All right, you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. In order for whatever you are bringing to the world to change the world, it must first change your world. It has to, or else it won't be reflected in your work and therefore out into each of your students' worlds. Ooh, I like that. I, I, I also like the author pretty well, too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and, now, and now we have an exclusive quote from his new book, Royce Christian's new book, right here on Big Universe. All right, are you ready for my quote? Yes. When we recognize the divine presence everywhere, then we know that it responds to us and that there is a law of good, a law of love, forever giving of itself to us. That was Ernest Holmes. Ooh.
You know, I, I love that. I know, really I always, do. I like that one a lot, actually. I, I always, know. <laughs> I always like a little Ernie. Yeah, a little Ernie. Ernie. Oh my God, I've never even thought of him that way. That's hilarious. <laughs> Ernie Holmes. <laughs> Ernie Holmes. All right, Royce. Well, thank you for joining me for this opening segment. And uh, we're going to jump right into the episode now. Hi, friends. This is Martha Creek, marthacreek.com to contact me. And this today's lesson is inspired by the teachings of Eckhart Tolle, creating a new earth, living a life with purpose. And the topic is attachment. <laughs> how, many, how many times have you heard, let go of your attachments, let go of your attachments? How do you let go of attachments? How in the world do we think we're going to be able to let go of attachments? So if you don't ever take anything away from any of my podcast or lessons, please take this away. Don't even try. Stop trying to let go of attachments. Yes, do not even try this. Don't try this at home, folks. Don't try letting go of attachments. It's impossible. The great news, however, is attachment to things drops away by itself when you no longer seek to define yourself in them. Attachment to things drops away. Attachments to things leave us. Attachments to things fade away or stop to exist when you and I no longer seek to define ourselves by them, to find ourselves in things, to define ourselves in things. So that I will no longer be attached to things in the material world, in the financial world, in relationship world, in familial world, when I stop defining myself by them. So what I have and who I know and where I go and what I wear and what I own and what I've got displayed and what I've got in the bank does not define who I am. So when I stop seeking to prove who I am or to prove uh, my uh, power, value, and worth by things, then attachment drops away. Maybe this will be the best gospel news of your day today. To quit trying to let go of attachments and instead give your time and energy and care, practice to stopping defining myself by things. So then attachment to things stops when I stop seeking to define myself by them. So what would that look like in your life right here and right now if you understood there is nothing in the world, no belongings, no possessions, no ideas, no anything that defines who you are, that defines your power, your value, your safety, your worth, or anything, if you simply did not believe that any longer, what would that be like? Infinite love and blessings to you, friends. Contact me, marthacreek.com. 
Hello, everybody. My name is Edward Biagiotti. I'm the co-host of Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed right here on Unity Online Radio. It is a pleasure to be with you on Big Universe to talk about tuning in to our inner guidance, to God, to the divine mind, to a higher power. In order to live the way that these principles that we study in unity, in metaphysical Christianity, in many spiritual traditions, in order to really experience these truths. I think it is important. I have found it has been valuable, is a better way of saying it, to have a morning routine that involves inspired reading, some form of meditation, and some form of affirmative prayer. Now, the, the reading could be as simple as reading a few paragraphs out of your favorite inspiring books in the morning. I read from the Daily Word. I read from Around the Year with Emmett Fox, A Deep Breath of Life by Alan Cohen. I read from uh, Science of Mind 365 by Ernest Holmes. I read these things because they get my mind out of the patterns of fear, doubt, and worry that maybe I developed over time of this life that are all around us uh, in being broadcast. So I read these things to sort of break up the rocks in my mind. Then I practice some meditation. I do 17 minutes on my timer and breathe. As I relax my mind, it's, I open myself up to new thoughts. I affirm some things. I, I have some affirmations that I've memorized from Catherine Ponder. I do not depend upon persons or conditions for my prosperity. I bless persons or conditions as channels of my prosperity, but God is the source of my supply. God provides his own amazing channels for me now. As I meditate and my mind begins to loosen up, I start inserting these affirmative thoughts. And then you could write an affirmative to-do list for the, for the day or just affirm more things when you get that elevated perspective. Because the bottom line is that when we connect with the divine mind or what some people call God, we know it because it feels so good. Because in truth, like Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within. When we tap into the kingdom of heaven within us, it is unmistakable. It's who we truly are. The guidance comes from connecting to who we truly are turning over any problems to something that is beyond our rational mind, but just knows deep within us that all is well. So that's my two cents for now. Have a great day. It's great to be with you. And remember, Daryl and Ed love you. And now it's time for our interview. Paul Selig is one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. In his breakthrough works of channeled literature, including I Am the Word, Beyond the No Realization, and Alchemy, he has recorded an extraordinary program for personal and planetary evolution as humankind awakens to its own divine nature. Paul was born in New York City and receives his master's from Yale. A spiritual experience in 1987 left, his, left him clairvoyant. Paul served on the faculty of New York University for over 25 years and is the former director of the MFA and writing program at Goddard College, where he now serves on the board of trustees. Paul, welcome to Big Universe. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, you know that anybody who lives in Maui um, is required to have the hosts visit on a fairly regular basis. And that applies to all our listeners, too. So if that's okay. Okay. I'll bake cookies. Oh, cookies are wonderful. We'd love that. Definitely love that. So I thought we'd start out with just some basics because, you know, people might be just coming in and not, not knowing what you do and how you experience things. And I know you've gone over these things a million times, I'm sure. But I, I just want to give a quick look at what your experience has been with channeling and your psychic work. 
Um, I, I guess the first question is, who are the guides? They're teachers. I mean, they're only called the guides because my ex years ago, when my ex found out I could do this stuff, used to say, ask the guides this, ask the guides that. So that's why I call them the guides. But they're teachers. The name that they've given, when they've given a name, has been Melchizedek, which is a priesthood. Um, and I've gotten comfortable with that. But I'm, my experience of them is that they're a collective and that they're coming with a lot more wisdom than I have. So I'm happy to take the dictation for them. And, um, and yeah, and, and they're here to sort of show us who and what we truly are beyond, you know, the limited frames that we've been operating through. So when you say you take dictation, how does that process work for you? What, what is that? What does that feel like? And what is that about? Well, I'm clear audience, you know, which is clear hearing. That's what it means. Um, when I'm doing a book dictation, you know, the books aren't written at all. I sit in a chair, I close my eyes. I'll hear one phrase repeated again and again and again. And when I speak that phrase, everything else tumbles out on top of it. I whisper the words as they come and then repeat them. It's like I'm on a loop. I'm hearing, I'm speaking, I'm hearing, I'm speaking like that. And they'll go on until they say, stop now, please. Usually 20, 30, 40 minutes into a lecture is when they'll end, because that seems to be about as much as I can handle in one sitting. Um, and the books have all been done. The last four or five books, there's nine of them now, the ninth one's coming out in August, have all been dictated in front of audiences. So wow. you know, this is a very public process and there's no editing. So, you know, the recordings get sent to the transcriptionist and the transcriptionist sends them back for proofreading and then this goes to the publisher and that's it. So the first book that I, I dictated, which was in 2010, I think, um, 2009 was called I Am The Word. Um, that, took two, that took two and a half weeks of sittings, you know, and that was the book. Wow. And some of them take longer now, but it's because I'm not doing sittings every day. When I was doing, when I was traveling a lot with my work before COVID, they would do them in front of audiences and workshops. So if I were doing three workshops a month, they do maybe, you know, 10 lectures over the course of the month, you know, or 15, depending on how often I was working. So that's the process. Now, how did this come about? I mean, how did you get this experience in the first place? And did you welcome it when it first came in? I don't know that I welcomed it. I'm not somebody who even necessarily believed in channeling. I didn't put a lot of stock in it. Um, I'd read half of the Seth book, you know, the Jane Roberts channelings when I was a graduate student and thought it was really fascinating, but I, I didn't put tremendous stock in the phenomena. Um, I had studied a form of energy healing. I started opening up psychically when I was about 25 and that was a surprise. I started seeing little lights around people and I started to feel energy. And I ended up um, working with an energy healer to get a context for what I was experiencing. And then I studied and I was volunteering at a center uh, in New York City. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. So these little centers were popping up for you know, alternative healing. And I found that when I had my hands on people's bodies, I could hear things for them. So if I had my hand in your head and I heard the name Agnes, I'd say, who's Agnes? And you'd say, my mother, my wife, my, my dog. And as that kept getting proven out, I began to trust it. And I sat in a little group in my apartment and I did it for 18 years, mm. about once a week. I took two years off actually when I decided enough was enough and I wanted another experience beyond this. Sure. For 18 years, I was pretty dedicated to sitting in a group and I was interested in the energy that would come through in the channelings because it was extremely palpable. 
and I liked it. You could get kind of high off of it, and I loved that feeling. And I wasn't that interested in the information that was coming through for the most part until about 12 years ago. I was, you know, 48 years old and I quit smoking finally after being a lifelong heavy smoker. And then my reception just cleared up to mm -hmm. through the roof. And that's when they started lecturing, you know, in long form. And that's when the book started coming. And it really hasn't stopped. Um, I was always more interested in the energy than the information. Hmm. And the books themselves are, you know, energetic transmissions. People can feel them. They have big sort of opening psychic experiences, spiritual experiences with the texts, which is what the guides said they intended. You know, it's a discourse, a conversation with the energy field of, of, of the reader. But I, um, you know, I, I was resistant. I didn't, you know, I was spooked, in fact, by the whole thing, you know. Um, and, and I was, you know, and I've always been extremely mindful about it. You know, I don't write these books, but my name appears on the cover. My name appears on the cover. So I, I question the teachings that come through me. If I hear something that I don't trust, I'll say, please explain. And we see that in the process, too. We see that in the books that you, you sometimes question the, the content. So when, is there a difference between the kind of psychic work that you do and the in the work with the channeling? Is there a difference with that? Yeah, there's, it's a distinct difference for me. When I'm channeling, I'm taking dictation. It's There's no editorializing. If I interrupt, I'm clear that it's me interrupting or the guides will make it clear. Paul has a question, Paul is interrupting. But that's dictation. I don't get to go back and change anything. I don't, it's not about interpretation. If I'm reading psychically, if I tune into you, the first thing that I'll do is, is feel in my own body, in my own emotional being, what it feels like to be you. And I've been told, because I'll often, if you ask about, say, your spouse, I tune into your spouse, I may begin to look like your spouse. You know, I'll take on the mannerisms, the, you know, the facial tics, all of those things. And then I interpret. So if I tune into you and you're doing that, that means you're accusing, you're angry, you're pointing a finger at somebody. Mm -hmm. If you Glyphs, it means you're lusty, you know, all of these. Mm -hmm. I've got a whole vocabulary at this point of, of, of symbols and gestures that I work with. Um, and it's quite accurate, but there's more interpretation required there. So I feel angry. So I'm saying, I'm, when I tune into you, I get angry. When I'm reading, I'll hear he is angry. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And he's angry about X, Y, and Z. And this is how he can work with it. I use both skills when I work with people, um, you know, as, as as a reader. But my my work as a channel, the only psychic stuff that shows up in that is when I'm given visual information during a dictation, and they'll say we're showing Paul, you know, a field, we're showing Paul a waterfall. Mm -hmm. and I'm having that experience of sight, but they're using that to relay a point or to give me an illustration that they're going to expound upon verbally. Let's see. I see. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So um, when, I don't know if the guys are going to join us at any point, and that's certainly up to them and to you. Um, what's, what's the difference in how you come across when the guides are, the channeling happens and, and you don't? Well, with channeling, I mean, I'm receded, you know, I work with a little prayer protection that I've been doing since the beginning. And I just do that because it sets a field that I, I like to work in. Okay. But I'm, when I hear the voice, it's a voice that 
comes before my own thoughts. It, it almost interrupts. It almost blocks out my own thinking. Interesting. And thought that I would never choose. You mm -hmm. know, that's how I was initially able to understand the difference. It's usually not a convenient thought in the least. Mm -hmm. um, so that I'm not sure if I recall the question. That's how you know it starts. What, what what did you ask again, please? I was just curious the difference in in how it comes through to you and delivery. You know how how it delivers through you. Well, with the channeling, it's dictation. I whisper the words, which is the transmission. I repeat them. Mm -hmm. I whisper. I repeat. It's sometimes it's a mile a minute. Mm -hmm. When I'm reading, it's much more relaxed. Mm -hmm. There's room for conversation and interpretation. But when I'm taking dictation. I'm essentially receiving a lecture that's probably already been prepared by them. And, you know, depending on where I'm at, if I, if I have resistance or if there is resistance in the room, sometimes it sounds louder, barky, sometimes it's a mile a minute. Mm -hmm. In the old days, if we were to do a group that was supposed to start at 8 p.m. and the group started at 8.15 because people arrived late, the guides would speak so fast, and it would turn out because they'd prepared a lecture for the time that they had, hmm. you know, uh -huh. and they would catch up. Interesting. And catch up, they would slow down again. I mean, it was exhausting to work that way, but you know, that's what it used to be like. Now it's, I've been working long enough that I feel, you know, I trust them. I trust how it works. Fortunately, they always seem to show up when I have to do this. Mm -hmm. I have left you know, dry yet, um, sure. tremendous fear when I first started. I was like, what happens if nobody shows up? You know, what if I'm not hearing? Right. Um, but so I'm more comfortable with the entire process now because of a lot of years of doing it. Now, we just have a few minutes before we need to take a break. And I just, I wanted to ask, what is the purpose in them speaking to us at this time in our human experience? Is there, is this a particular moment in time that is, auspicious or is it just something that is always available i think it's always been available i think it may be available in a slightly different fashion now the guides have said that humanity is at a time of reckoning and a reckoning is a facing of oneself and all of one's creations and that everything that's been chosen or created in fear needs to be renowned in a higher way you know so it's a great opportunity and they also say that humanity has chosen to move forward as a species so that well, that's we, kind of good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> very good to hear. I mean, it's very hopeful, but it probably also means letting go of a lot of things that we thought would always be so. You know, they're really talking about beginning to operate in a higher level of, of vibration or consciousness. And that means you don't get to drag your crap along with you. You have to let it go. And that's both individually and collectively. Right, right. Well, we'll be right back on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. So I thought we'd dive into your latest book, Alchemy, uh, in the Beyond the Known trilogy. And I was curious, this book, what do you think the main emphasis of this book is 
compared to other books that you've channeled? Well, the process of this book was, was a bit different, although it was done on the road, on tour. Um, I was in a complete sort of state of destabilization through the entire dictation. I've never been through anything like it. Hmm. Um, and it was the hardest channeling I've ever done. Not that the channelings themselves weren't fluid, hmm. they were, but I was having to sort of attend to so much stuff that was coming up through the course of this that when I was doing the book, I didn't even know whether it would make sense to anybody. And it wasn't until I saw all the lectures together mm -hmm. that I saw how coherent a teaching it was. And really a very beautiful teaching, but in a lot of ways, this is the teaching about navigating between this sort of reality that we've been operating in and we've known and what they call the upper room, which is, they say, the octave above. And it's really the process of letting go of your crap, mm -hmm. you know, so that you can hold the higher tone, the higher vibrational way of being that they're offering us. So I remember the very first dictation I was channeling at the Esalen Institute, I was assuming that they would bring through a book because I had seven days with a group of people, which is a great opportunity to do a lot of work. And the first two days, nothing happened. I went, I guess there's no book. And the third day I woke up to the news of uh, a friend of mine from my academic life who'd taken his life. And the last person I ever thought would have done that. And I was stunned. I'm and sure. I walked into the classroom and the guides began the book that morning. Wow. That was how it started. And it was like that throughout. Mm -hmm. um, everything was out of the familiar, out of my comfort zone. And they had to address what I was going through as part of the teaching. And it's not a personal book. I don't know if one would even know that. But in retrospect, I feel that I was being prepared to the life that I'm living now, which is quite different. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm living in a new place, having a very different experience of myself in the world than I did prior to the dictation of that book. So I feel that it's a book of great joy and great promise, even though it was a tough one and a tough process to undergo. Sure. Well, I'm certainly sorry for your loss there and, and for that experience. Um, so really something interesting that they say uh, in this book is, and I love how it's put, each of you in your own way has come to be sung in a new voice mm -hmm. beyond the echo or effects of personality. Mm -hmm. I love the the song there, you know, the the idea of the singing. And that seems different from what at least to me, it seems different from what the way it's been expressed before. And also the the idea that we're singing as a collective and a collective agreement as a species. Can you speak to that a little bit? I don't know, I'll try. The, at the very end of the first book, I Am the Word, the last chapter is all about song and this, this joyous teaching came out and it felt like it was a slightly different guide. And I used to talk, this was the guide with the British accent I used to hear it that way or speak it that way. And everything was about song and music and tone. And it was all sort of glorious. And those teachings are present actually in all of the books. But what they're speaking to is this idea of, of transposition. So they say we're operating now in an octave and it's an octave as a shared construct of reality with low notes and high notes and that everything we experience and see is in accord, and they say A-C-C-O-R-D or A-C-H-O-R-D as on a piano, 
with this reality. This is our shared experience of being. And what they're doing with their students, if I understand it correctly, is they are transposing the music that we are, which is the tone or, or our vibrational field, to play in a higher octave. So they say any song can be sung in any octave into infinity, beyond what the ears can hear, the music can, can continue to play. And what they're doing with us is shifting the vibration of who we are to play or to be sung, which is to be expressed in a higher fashion. But they've often talked about the great chorus has begun. I mean, it's, very quite, it's really quite joyous. <clears throat> and they often now, when they work through me, is sing through me, which is basically toning. Um, but they do that, I think, to create a collective field where certain things can happen for the student. You know, they create a field through tone there where things can be, what they say is re-articulated or re-spoken, re-sung. You know, the teaching is really about resonance and vibrational resonance. And they say, you know, your consciousness is your vibration. Hmm. So when you lift your consciousness, you're lifting to a higher level of knowing and being. I love that uh, idea of the octave shift, you know, shifting, shifting octaves. That's, that's a beautiful idea. So the upper room, mm -hmm. um, you, you, they refer to the upper room and you talked about a, a little bit briefly earlier um, it, that will become part of this upper room mm -hmm. and that there are three steps to basically getting to that upper room. First off, what is what are they talking about when they say the upper room? They say it's the next octave. It's the octave above the one that we've been basically indoctrinated into. Hmm. You know, they say we were born into a world that has already been, I mean, this is my word, but polluted with fear, mm -hmm. you know, and we accept this as what should be. And they say, well, when you lift to the upper room, you're not operating in fear anymore because the energy of fear, the vibration of fear doesn't exist there. So you're lifting to a level of, of being and they call it, you know, it's the presence of the divine. They speak about the kingdom, which they say the kingdom can be accessed from the upper room and their definition of the kingdom is the awareness of the presence of the divine in all manifestation in everyone and everything you don't get to cherry pick what is holy in this teaching they say all is holy or nothing is you really don't have it really can't have it both ways so the upper room i understand now really is the entry point for what can happen at another level of consciousness. And they say the upper room is another octave with its lows and its highs. So I don't think it necessarily means that we arrive there and we're enlightened or awakened. I don't consider myself either of those things. Although I think I'm on a journey as everybody is. Um, but that it's what allows us access to another level of, of knowing. And the guys are teaching knowing, which is claircognizance, which is they say to know is to realize, to know the divine in yourself is to know the divine in everyone. You really don't get to have it both ways. Hmm. So uh, when we're talking about an upper room, we're talking about an octave. And I, I assume that means that the octaves continue up, that, that there, yeah. are, there are upper, upper rooms to upper, get, upper, upper. get to, to even more glimpses of or, or aspects of the kingdom. We're talking about that now, yeah. I mean, they just started in lectures. I've got another book that's supposed to commence sometime this summer, and I'm assuming, and I may be wrong, that that's some of where where, where they'll go, because they've introduced the upper room in the last series and given the tools to 
to maintain the vibration there. And what happens beyond that is really unknown to me. Hmm. So about reaching that upper room, you mentioned that there are, there are three steps, that, or, or they mentioned that there are three steps. And first to me, that I under, from what I understand is release who you thought you should be and be in agreement with a true agreement with who you are. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, they work with attunements and the attunements are spoken and they're, they're quite potent. You can usually feel the vibration and you're referencing what I assume is the, the attunement. I know who I am in truth. And the guides say the true self, that aspect of you that is eternal, you can call it the Christ itself, if you want, or, you know, the eternal self, there's a name for it probably in every religion. Um, the eternal self knows who it is and is not bound by time and personality and all of these other things that we've mistaken ourselves for. So the reclamation of the divine self in its expression is in a lot of ways, the, the entirety of the teaching. It's becoming who you truly are, reclaiming who you truly are, which comes at the cost of the old, which is simply the idea of who we are, you know, which is born in limitation and is born in, you know, where we come from, how old we are, you know, all of, all of the externals that perhaps influence our ideas of who we are or perhaps should be. So they mentioned that, you know, you, when you go someplace, you're presenting an idea of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I'm, you know, how do you know if you, if, if you have this answer, how do you know what's your, what you're just presenting versus what is a, a real expression of, of that truth of who you are? I think, I mean, I think of the personality construct, which they refer to as the small self, and that's not to denigrate it. The personality is an important part of who we are. But we've mistaken ourselves for the personality structure. So we think we're our job or our marriage or, you know, our ethnicity. These are ways of knowing the self and they're valuable ways, but they're not who we truly are. And who we truly are is something beyond that. So they say, you know, we're basically here in this great big masquerade. You know, I'm playing this role in this lifetime. You're playing that role. We have our encounters. We learn through these things. They're all opportunities to learn and to grow. But my understanding, if I, if I, I mean, I would venture to say this, this is normally when I would go to them and say, what do you want to say? Um, but it's a little noisy outside where I am today. So I don't think I'm going to try to channel. Um, the, they're saying, well, they are saying the idea of who you are is getting in the way of who you really wish to express, of who you really wish to express as it should be. The idea of who you should be, what it means to be an idea of self, what it means to be an idea of self. I must be successful. I must be successful. This is the litany that requires success. This is the litany that requires success. I must be rich. I must be rich. This is what a rich man says and does. This is what a rich man says and does. You mistake who you are. You mistake who you are for these ideas of self, for these ideas of self, or you have the money. Who are you without the money, without the gender, without the gender, without the marriage, without the marriage? You will find yourself simply. You will find yourself simply unadorned, unadorned in your true beauty, in your true beauty. The divine is who and what you truly are. The divine is who and what you truly are, period, in the same period. Very interesting. Um, so the divine self, when you, when you peel those things away, um, what is... How, how do you experience this world in that sense? 
you know i mean we're kind of in a world of of construct here where we're kind of limited by we're limited in some extent how does one in this experience kind of go about the world does that make any sense does that question make any sense well they're they're, they're speaking about it now actually in their lectures it's a lot about being in the world but not of it and they're talking about embodiment at this level as happening you know in a reality that you're operative in it's not about disappearing into a cave or ascending beyond your everyday challenges it's simply who meets the challenges and at what level they say you end up becoming the the portal or the doorway to the higher consciousness you become the gateway because you're operating at a level of vibration but you're actually lifting what you encounter and this isn't done by effort you know here i'm going to lift this problem i'm going to fix that it's not about that at all it's really just a teaching of co-resonance at that level so you're operating in a higher tone or frequency and you're claiming what you see in accord with that because that's the law of entrainment if i understand it so i find that it's a little bit about becoming uninvested in what should be and outcome um i can only sort of say it that way because i'm not any farther than that and i don't know what it's like to operate from that level of, of consciousness all the time but what i do know is when we're doing workshops and the guides lift everybody to the upper room 100 people and then they'll say and what are you afraid of and then there's nothing there hmm. nobody has anything it's like it's gone it just doesn't exist and then we kept we keep getting pulled back into the the forest of fear of all the things we should be afraid of and then we end up operating there again so my small indication of this is it's being who you truly are without a need to be seen in a certain way by others without a need to prove an idea of oneself that you think you're supposed to do so much of what we're taught to want is born out of uh, some collective ideology you should be good looking you should be wealthy you should be successful says who do you know what i mean bro oh, yeah yeah all here to learn whatever we're here to learn and so when people talk about manifesting they're usually referring to that list of i should have more money i should have more of this and you know should the guide say is always born in some historical data you can't have a should without a prior idea of what once was and they're moving us beyond that and the claim that they work with when they're doing this work and the attunement is behold i make all things new which is really a claim of transmutation of lifting what you encounter beyond how it appears or beyond how one is invested in it the attunement and they brought this through a few books ago in the book of the book of freedom was the claim i am free i am free i am free and what they're saying in that attunement is i'm free of the constructs that i was born into that tell me what is allowed and who i may know myself as you know, so I'm on Maui now. I was living in New York City pretty much my whole life. And um, I came here because I couldn't go back to New York City. I was out of the country when New York City shut down. Mm -hmm. And I found myself here, the last place I ever expected to be, and never left. Mm -hmm. And the guides used to say in workshops, you know, you all think you have to go home, but you don't. Mm. Think you do, but you don't. You can leave here and go someplace else. 
You know, we're so stuck in what we think should be and what we should do that we forget at times our innate freedom. Interesting. So I know that they talk about humanity being about to make a great leap forward. Is that is that in resonance with this idea that each of us individually are are making this leap and that kind of brings up the collective? Is that what we're talking about or are we also, I, I know you also mentioned dismantling the structure yeah. that's happening. Well, I think it's happening in two different ways. I mean, I think that, you know, the guides have said in their books, you know, for each one of you who wakes up, you wake up a thousand more by nature of your presence alone, which is, is happening at that level. But, you know, one of the challenges, I think, of what people call the new age is this sort of need to make it about ourselves personally. You know, I created this, he created that. Why did I create this illness? All that stuff. And we're also creating through the collective, you know, the collective beliefs of what can be. And that, I think, is what we're beginning to have to attend to now because we can't operate in isolation anymore. And the guys have pretty much said, you know, you've created the means of, for your own self-destruction. I mean, the idea, and they've said this in the books, that, you know, you think a bomb will keep you safe is ridiculous. Bombs are meant to go off and they're meant to destroy. Mm -hmm. That's what they're for. That's what they were, that was what they were created for, not to maintain peace. And that eventually they'll go off unless you change your consciousness, you know, beyond the, the need for war which they say is, is a fear-based construct. But they said, until you, until you know that you don't require this anymore, you're gonna, you're gonna continue to create from it. You have to claim a level of consciousness where that's no longer an option. You know, that's not in the menu of things chosen. Hmm. And the way to do that is to live to a level of awareness where you wouldn't do it. It just would make no sense. It makes no sense when I say it, but we still go ahead and do it again and again and again and again. Now that feels very daunting, you know, very big thing to take on. And mm -hmm. I wondered, you know, I wonder what advice the guides might give and, and from your experience, you know, um, how do we get to that point? It feels so far away to some extent. By knowing who you are, knowing who your neighbor is, knowing who your neighbor is beyond who she presents as, beyond what he or she presents as, you're not going to know you do not kill what you know to be holy. You do not war with your neighbor. We know the source of all things when you know the source of all things. You do not kill what you love. You do not kill what you love. There is no reason for it. There is no reason for it. You say it is daunting. You say it is daunting because you've been taught it is daunting. You've been taught it is daunting. You agree to that. And you agree to that. Consequently, it's just been Consequently, it's the reality that you exist and it takes very little. It takes very little to wake someone from a slumber, to wake someone from a slumber, but those who demand to stay asleep, but those who demand to stay asleep may be woken by something thunderous, may be woken by something thunderous. We hope that does not happen. We hope that does not happen. You might as well now. Humanity has a great opportunity now to know itself in love to know itself in love and know one's neighbor and to know one's neighbor as worthy of their own lives, as worthy of their own lives. You have the choices before you. You have the choices before you, what you claim in fear. What you claim in fear creates more fear, creates more fear, violence is fear. Violence is fear, war is fear, war is fear. Don't justify these things. Don't justify these things, seek to rise above them. Seek to rise above them and lift the circumstances before you. 
and lift the circumstances before you to an opportunity for peace, to an opportunity for peace. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed between all these opportunities. Nothing has changed until this first known as an opportunity, as an opportunity period, period. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, you know, when we, when we're faced neighbor to neighbor, we can look at each other's eyes and say, you know, I, I don't wish harm on you. Um, there are times, though, when we do have conflicts with people, and it's, it's challenging to navigate that. What, what kind of thoughts do you have on, you know, just being in a conflict with someone and not, not taking it to the level of, you know, anger or violence or that sort of thing? Do you have any thoughts on that? One of the things they say, you know, when they're teaching is you have to forgive the other people, the other party, those people over there for not being who you wanted them to be or who you want them to be, because that's really your problem. And that's what ties you into it. They say very simply who you put in darkness or what you put in darkness calls you to that darkness. It's the law again of co-resonance. They've said you can't lift the evil man to the upper room because you have made him evil. Hmm. And consequently, you've aligned at that level of vibration or consciousness. They also say self-just self-righteousness is always the small self. So there's a good barometer for, you know, for me, you know, when I'm on my high horse, it's usually my personality has been, you know, attacked and wants to wants to fight back. So there are lots of ways to do this. We can also learn through conflict. And the guides have said, you know, we're accountable to all of our actions. Everybody is. I mean, that's karma. You know, it's what happens. You're, you're accountable to your choices. Um, and everybody is. So it's not about, you know, everybody getting off the hook. And they say, if somebody steps on your foot, say, please get off my foot. And if they keep doing it, call the cops, you know, if that's what you need to do. You know, it's not about, you know, lying down and, and becoming a doormat. But I think it is about how and what we begin to attract when we begin to operate in a higher way, which I believe to be a somewhat different experience that's now available if we choose it. You mentioned karma in there, and, you, and I know they mentioned karma is an opportunity. Yeah, an opportunity. What is karma in the sense that they, that they indicate? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's just really the law of cause and effect. I don't think it's anything more than that. And consequently, it's an opportunity to learn. So I can learn not to place my hand in the fire by burning myself, which is the hard way to learn. There are other ways to learn the same lessons. They also say, you know, a town has karma, a, a country has karma beyond the individual. Again, this is beginning, us, beginning to ask us to think beyond the individual to the collective, you know, and this is what we're party to. So the guides say, if you can see something, if you can bear witness to it, you're in vibrational accord to it. How you hold this thing or this person or this event in consciousness actually informs the event. You know, it's like what you damn damns you back, what you bless, blesses you in return. And they say all a blessing is, is the realization of the presence of the divine upon something. And then they say our only problem as a species is what they call the denial of the divine. That's mm -hmm. it. Everything, everything can be brought right down to that, where we deny the presence of, of source, whatever that means to you. And that one I get, 
You know, it's very, very, very simple. And, um, and they're, they're working with it through, through attunement in their teachings. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left. And I wanted to ask you if there was one thing that you or the guides would, would suggest or communicate or one tool or piece of advice to navigate what we're going through right now, what would it be? Don't make choices in fear. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. always, they say the action of fear is to claim more fear. They say, look at every choice you've ever made in fear and see what it got you. Probably more of the same. And they make a, diff they make a distinction between fear and prudence. So you know, if you go to the beach and it says, you know, sharks in the water, probably best not to go for a swim. That's not fear-based, that's discerning. Don't skate on thin ice, you know, it's simple, simple stuff. But, um, you know, the guides say there's never been a lie told that was not told in fear. And, you know, we're accountable to what we say and who we, how we operate in the world. And if we simply make that one adjustment, I think a lot of things can begin to change individually and collectively as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for bringing on the sh coming on the show with us. It's been awesome having you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And for more information about Paul Selig, you can go to paulselig.com and check out, check out his latest book, Alchemy. Uh, make sure you look out for his new book. It's, it's coming out in August. Is that right? Awesome. August 2021. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Paul. I've got uh, some premium video courses and help to create them on my website called youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. <laughs>